I'm Bill Maher, senior reporter with The Deal, and I cover special purpose acquisitions or, or SPACs on a daily basis. On this edition of Drinks with The Deal, we welcome Doug Elenoff, founding partner with New York City-based law firm Elenoff, Grossman & Scholl. Among the areas we'll cover on today's show is how Doug got into the law, the role of the SEC in shaping this SPAC market, and how the market went from measured to crazed to partially frozen, and what that thaw is beginning to look like. We'll also look at how private investment in public equity financing is coming out of the Witness Protection Program, how many SPACs are electing to stay in the game, and how some white shoe law firms went from avoiding SPACs to wanting their slice of that pie. But the first order of business is having Doug explain what a SPAC is and how it's at the heart of his busy practice. Doug, thanks for making the time for this. My pleasure, Bill. Uh, anything for you. You've been covering the SPAC industry for quite some time, and it's greatly appreciated by the industry and of all the insights that you provide to your viewership. So as Bill said, my name is Doug Elinoff with the New York-based law firm. It's a securities law firm primarily, and one of the programs that we're intimately involved with is the SPAC program, which is a part of our capital markets program and disruptive alternative finance program. A SPAC is an IPO in part. A sponsor goes to an underwriter, and if the underwriter is so inclined and believes that investors will be interested, they will raise a sum of money for the public company that that sponsor, who is typically either a very well-known private equity firm, venture capital partner, or former C-suite level executive at a public company, and that sponsor will raise $100 million in a public offering. And that $100 million will sit in a trust account backed by U.S. Treasuries pending the subsequent proposed business combination that the sponsor's board of directors through the SPAC reviews, diligences, structures, and determines to be appropriate for the public markets. So it's an alternative way of a private company going public through a SPAC, which is also known as a blind pool offering, a 419 shell. And so it's really a two-step transaction. There is the IPO to raise the $100 million in my example. And then the board and the sponsor of that public company search for an appropriate private company that wants to go public through a SPAC and become a public company. And that is what the SPAC market is. It is an alternative to an IPO. Okay. Now, Doug, typically, just give me a, a ballpark figure for a moment. A sponsor decides they want to put a vehicle into the registration. How much does it roughly cost to get in registration and to be able to pursue a SPAC? For a sponsor to play the SPAC game, the cost of entry on my example of $100 million would be roughly $4 million. And that $4 million is at risk. It's a binary result for the sponsor. If they get a deal completed, they benefit because the $4 million goes to buy securities that become valuable if the business combination is successfully concluded. And in the alternative, if the deal isn't completed because the public doesn't like the deal and chooses to redeem their capital or vote down the transaction, the sponsor loses that money. So I'm fairly certain that as a kid growing up, you didn't necessarily say, you know, it'd be great. I'd love to be a SPAC attorney. So give us an idea of, of how you got into the law and why it was important for you. My father was a securities lawyer. He had a law firm that did a significant number of IPOs and represented a lot of public companies. So it was something that I grew up with that I was comfortable with. Early on in my career, I wasn't sure if I was going to go the investment banking route or the law route. But I loved my father. I respected what he did for a living and I wanted to emulate him. And so I went to law school. And from very early on, I realized that I wanted to be a securities lawyer. I liked entrepreneurship. I liked raising capital for people who were going to do something new and different. And so that appealed to me. And when I got out of law school and I started my own firm over 30 years ago, so it was pretty early in my career that I started my own firm, I realized early that in order to capture interesting new matters, I had to look at the world like an entrepreneur would 
and try and do things that other law firms, established law firms, wouldn't necessarily be attracted or drawn to and work with those clients and like the SPAC program. So in the early days, there was the reverse merger program, which I realized that we could have an active role in. And then the reverse merger program led to an opportunity with small brokerage firms doing what were then called pipes, which became registered directs and ATMs. And so we took a very disruptive approach to the practice of law, finding these kind of outlier finance programs that the mature law firms would not participate in, not because I thought they had given them any real thought or consideration. Many times the regulators had concerns with these programs, but we worked for years and years and years with the regulators to improve these programs and SPACs being another iteration. But also, as you know, more recently, I spent a decade helping with the crowdfunding industry and the rules. We also participated, although we couldn't get comfortable with it, with the crypto industry. So I think if you look back over the 30 years, the common theme is new and interesting innovations in the securities laws have always appealed to me. And we haven't always actively participated in every one of these programs, just the ones that we thought would be advantageous to entrepreneurs and investors and help with the capital markets. I'm wondering at what point after law school, did you begin to look around and say, you know, I I think I want to put out my own shingle. Maybe I'm not comfortable joining a larger firm. Or if there was something specific about bigger law that made you uncomfortable. (laughs) It's funny you say that. I I paralegaled at a large law firm, and I learned that their divorce rates were higher than the national average, and that just didn't appeal to me. So I ran for the hills and started my own practice after three years. And if I recall correctly, at one point you interned at the SEC. So during law school, my father had a former partner who became the head of the capital markets practice at the SEC, the small business group. Actually, he ran the New York regional office of the SEC. And I asked him if I could intern for a period of time with the SEC doing small public offerings, which at that time, they no longer do it. They would send out to the regional offices and we would work on the small public offerings. And so I spent a lot of time in that group working, giving comments on small deals to law firms. And so that's how I cut my teeth with that. Met lots of great people at the SEC, have nothing but respect for the institution, even though, as I'm sure we'll get into, I certainly have criticisms episodically of some of the ways that they operate. Well, before we jump into the SEC, I'm wondering your experience with smaller offerings. You hear a lot of talk about the idea that companies stay private longer now, and they have different options they may not have had 20 years ago. But at the very same time, I think there is a fair argument to be made that it isn't necessarily easy to go public, whether you decide to go a SPAC route or a traditional IPO route, and that it's not easy to raise public capital, which is one of the charges the SEC is supposed to have. I'm wondering, as you look at the marketplace and you look at the ability of companies that wish to go public and the challenges they they face, whether there is maybe something that we should be considering to allow them a more clear route, perhaps. I think it's a great observation, Bill. I mean, the I think there's a poor reflection on how things shift from one political party to the next. In 2019, I was asked to testify in Congress, and the topic was exactly the one that you're talking about, is why are private companies staying private longer and not giving the public the opportunity to invest in all these interesting innovations that our entrepreneurs generate? And my answer at that time was, we, as a country, Congress, the SEC, need to encourage private companies to go public. And the way that I envisioned it, which turned out to be how it unfolded, was through the SPAC market. The IPO market's been steady decline for 30 years. The numbers have dwindled to a, I think, maybe 20 or 30% of what they were when I was a young professional. It's become more costly and burdensome and prone to litigation, as you've observed. The number of investment banks that are prepared to do smaller IPOs has reduced correspondingly. 
because they're under pressure from FINRA for regulations and litigation as well. So they're only willing to do larger, well-known IPOs like we're in the process of seeing as we speak with ARM. And there are a couple of other signature deals that are about to go public in today's market. And the SPAC marketplace up until 2020 really was a very smooth way for mature business models that were not properly profiled to go public through an IPO for the SPAC sponsors to say, I know this industry, I know this company. And even though an underwriter might not be prepared to take it public, it's family owned or the growth rate isn't the same as some of the other Silicon Valley backed companies. It's worthy of being public. And so from 1993 to 2020, the vast majority of companies that went public through a SPAC were more mature business models. But then in 2020, and the deal I think we can talk about is Virgin Galactic, it just changed everybody's view of the SPAC marketplace. It's not that there hadn't been pre-revenue companies that went public through SPACs prior to that. But the Virgin Galactic deal caught the public's imagination. It was in the middle of the beginning of COVID. Everybody was at home. It was Chamath's first SPAC, his last week of existence when he announces the deal. And it just caught the public's imagination. And it was the first opportunity that really confirmed, to your point, that the public wants to participate in public venture capital. And it was a company that could easily have stayed private much longer, but chose not to. And it, pardon the pun, skyrocketed. And on the heels of that, you had DraftKings and then multiple electric vehicle companies. And all of a sudden, we went from the mature private equity-like private companies that went public through SPACs to a flood of venture sort of stories that went public through a SPAC in 2020 and 2021. And I'll end with the following comment. No sooner did all these private companies start going public sooner so that the public could participate than Congress and Elizabeth Warren and others and the media started saying, these companies are not ready to be public. What are we doing here? And so they then went about their business, which we'll talk about, to reverse that trend and slow the pathway to the public markets through SPACs. Doug, I think you make some very good points about how we got here. I've always found it interesting that from 2019 backwards, you very rarely had the SEC jump up and say, hey, there's a problem. You very rarely actually read anything about SPACs. And I was talking to a source last week who said that in 2019, people didn't know what SPACs were, but they didn't like them. He goes, 2023, everybody knows what a SPAC is and they don't like them. I don't think that's exactly accurate, but I do think the point you bring, starting with Virgin Galactic, is that you had companies were exciting or forward looking. It helped that I think Virgin Galactic had a, a huge star on board. And honestly, social capital made some noise. It was the first time in the market. And it, did capture some people's attention. There was an interesting story today about how social capital SPACs performed. And when Chama jumped out, I think you're right about the media. I do think there was not a tidal wave, but certainly a wave of coverage. And it wasn't always done by anybody who'd been in the market. I was lucky because I've been doing this a while, but it seemed like everybody seemed to have something to say but not necessarily something intelligent. With that said, let's talk a little bit about the SEC for a second. And if you don't mind, let's go backwards in time for a minute to March of last year. The SEC came out with 372 pages worth of suggested changes with regarding to SPAC regulations. I think it's notable that it's been better than a year, and none of those changes have been actually adopted. There are people who are cynical, some sources of mine, for sure, who do believe that the SEC's purpose wasn't necessarily to bring those changes to fruition. What they wished to do was to slow the market, which was at a runaway pace, 
and was difficult for the regulator to keep up with. Give me your impressions of the regulations they suggested and why, as we sit here today, we're still talking about something that hasn't happened. Well, let's start with the beginning. 1993. Unlike crypto, which operates in a completely unregulated environment and always has, SPACs are a product of SEC statute, Rule 419. So the SEC was aware before 1993 that there were blind pool offerings. They didn't like them. Congress didn't like them. So they implemented Rule 419, which tells commercial parties how, if you want to do a blind pool offering and get certain benefits, you have to go about doing it. And it has to be done through a registered, underwritten public offering. So nothing in the SPAC market since 1993 is done outside of the SEC's purview. People forget this. They think that there is some renegade group of commercial people, bankers, lawyers that are doing these things that somehow have been outside the SEC's involvement and participation. There have been a thousand, well more than a thousand SPAC IPOs, every single one of them submitted filings to the SEC like any other IPO. Every business combination has a proxy statement that is a full disclosure of the private company. It's financial statements audited, the history of the company, who's involved, who's getting what. And so the narrative that the SEC is behind in part and has been for a long time is that the disclosure is not consistent or tantamount with an IPO. And there are law professors who, who do the same thing. This is complete nonsense. Always has been, continues to be. One can argue that the disclosure has progressed and broadened over that 30-year period of time. And that's fair. And that's what regulators and lawyers do for a living. It was a new program in 1993. We learned as we went and we added certain risk factors and other disclosure that the SEC and everybody else thought were pertinent in order for an investor to make an informed decision. But over that 30-year period of time, as I said, there were comments and reviews. There were certain issues that were raised, including, and we'll come to it later, a 40-act issue around the trust account that was raised up the flagpole to the top brass of the SEC over 15 years ago. And we came to a resolution that everybody thought was the right way to go forward. So there's nothing that's going on in the SPAC market that isn't in front of the Securities and Exchange Commission. So that brings us to the frenzy of activity that you're referring to in 2020, 2021, when it is a fair statement to say the burden imposed, given the level of market activity from, I think it was your number that you reminded me of in 2019, give or take 59 or slightly less than 60 SPAC IPOs to over 600 in 2021, the SEC couldn't keep up. They weren't reviewing the SPAC IPO documents by the end of it. They were having young staff lawyers burning out and leaving and going to a large law because they could get paid a lot more money. So I'm sympathetic to the overall macro environment that we were all operating on, which is a tremendous amount of pressure because after so long, the SPAC market hit prime time. What I take issue with is the way in which the SEC elected to try and slow the SPAC market. One of the ways, as you point out in March of last year, is they proposed certain rules that the SPAC market would have to operate under going forward. Let's just take a few of them and we won't go through all of them. The first one is they suggested that they wanted enhanced disclosure. That was also suggested the year before by the prior SEC administration. Now, there's nothing that stops the SEC on a daily basis without congressional intervention from imposing increased disclosure. That's what they're there for. And if they would show their hand and tell us what it, they would like, nobody would object or care because it's not going to make the difference between a successful public offering or not. And that's not to be cynical. That's just the reality. And as a securities lawyer, and one who interned at the SEC and whose father was a securities lawyer, 
I want full and fair disclosure for the public. But that's not really what they cared about. They wanted to slow the market, as you point out. And in all the deals that have been filed and cleared this year, the IPOs as well as the business combinations, there is no suggestion that the disclosure is inadequate. It was just a narrative to suit their own purpose. The other two provisions, one is gatekeeper liability. The SEC would like to change the rules of engagement so that an investment bank that participates in the despacking process, regardless of what their role is, have underwriter-like disclosure. Well, that requires congressional action. What is and isn't deemed to be an underwriter is a term of art, and it needs Congress to determine if, in fact, the activity and the services provided rise to the level of meriting underwriter-like liability. And that's what we have in an IPO. There is an actual underwriter, and there's liability. In a SPAC, you have a SPAC IPO, and the underwriter has liability for that. But then the underwriter is not necessarily involved in any way with the ultimate choice by the SPAC of the target that it wants to transact with for on the qualifying business combination. So why should a broker-dealer who's acting as a financial advisor, not as an underwriter, have exposure, gatekeeper liability for that transaction? In the way that you do with an IPO. So we take exception with that, as did several comment letters from very significant authorities in this securities industry. And so that's, I think, going to be a problem for the SEC if challenged. And then the last one, which I think you can speak to as well as I can, is the whole use of the pro formas, which again is congressionally permissible under a statute that they enacted in an MA transaction which technically a SPAC is, the SPAC may use pro formas. But if they're not prepared and they're not prepared properly uh, with a reasonable basis, in fact, then there can be liability and exposure for that. But the use of them, there's nothing wrong with that. It's how you use them and what the information that's contained in them. And that's another one of their provisions which the industry takes exception to. Doug, let's go back to the uh, underwriting proposed changes that the SEC made. I think it's interesting and slightly ironic, perhaps, that once these came out, you saw a very decided pullback by investment banks looking at the sector, doing business in the sector. And what you're talking about, and I'll just I'll throw three examples out, Goldman's, Citibank, Credit Suisse, they were all players in the SPAC market before. They weren't huge, but they were there and they had a presence. And they had experience. The SEC steps up and says, hey, listen, we'd like you to take on some more responsibility. And these banks pulled back and said, hey, we're not sure we want to do that. Let us look at this. Let's, let's consider it. But in the meantime, that's changed somewhat. We started to see them re-enter the market a little bit. But I think the changes the SEC proposed had perhaps an unintended consequence. And that is that Investment banks that weren't active in the SPAC market saw opening, saw a vacuum, and jumped in. Now, I'm not saying these guys can't do business. I'm not saying they're they're not good at their jobs. What I am saying is they're different. They're in a different league. And the SEC's changes brought this about. I don't know whether the regulator thought it all the way through or not. And as to the pro forma, I think you're right in pointing out how big an impact that has. But I think in some cases, we saw backs were looking at venture-style businesses. And the projections were saying, yeah, you know, we're not going to make any money this year or next year, or maybe the three years after that. But we'll be in a position in that fourth year where we're going to have positive revenue. And then it's going to begin to look like a company with a solid financial stance. Now, you can point to investors and say, hey, maybe you look at that homework. Look at what's projected. If you're comfortable with that, you know, buy in. And if you're not, don't. But I think we saw more of those. And I think that honestly scared the SEC because the SEC was put in a position of having to protect retail investors from themselves. And that's not an easy thing to do in public. Am I too cynical about this or is something ring true for you? 
let's get certain facts correct. Not that you said anything incorrect, but let's level set. The first thing that people don't realize is the SEC is what we call a disclosure jurisdiction. It's not a merit review process. It is not their job. And since 1933, Congress decided this as opposed to the various states that had merit review of securities offering. Our government decided that's not the power that they were giving to the SEC. Your power is to review and make sure the disclosure is proper and accurate. And then you have a tripart mission, as you know, which is balancing capital formation, investor protection, and orderly markets. And I would suggest that is not the standard by which we're currently watching this SEC operate on. They have a very different view as to the balance of those. And I even question their view of what investor protection is. So when it comes to projections, the elimination of projections hasn't stopped the SPAC business combination market from happening at all. But it reminds me a little bit of Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca. I'm shocked (laughs) shocked to see that there's gambling going on here. When everybody knows in the IPO process, there are projections that are assembled by the investment bank and provided to the institutional investors, but not the public. So in a SPAC, where we're providing it full transparency to everybody at the same time, amusingly and ironically, that's where the SEC is taking issue. If they had said, listen, we don't think the quality of the projections is what it needs to be, as opposed to eliminate projections. I'm more sympathetic to it, but there were different ways of going about doing that. One of the ways was, and they did do this, was point their guns at certain projections and say, take it to Delaware court in civil litigation, and let's fight over the reasonable basis of those projections there. And that's a fair fight. I don't have a problem with that, actually. People didn't use good faith efforts to assemble the projections, then let that be duped out in Delaware court. Truth be told, I don't think a single underwriter has been held to account in Delaware because these proposed rules are not finalized and there's no common law theory of gatekeeper liability to operate on. So one of the things that the SEC was trying to do was tie gatekeeper liability to the projections so that retail investors would have an angle of attack there. It's not that the two are unrelated, to be clear. So that's number one. I think having reasonably based projections is healthy for folks. And I would also say that in the vast majority of of cases, that the projections probably were never reviewed anyway by retail investors who chose not to redeem. And what you're really talking about is did institutional investors who participated in the pipes actually rely on those projections? And I find that very hard to believe. But what did happen, and if this was their intent, they got their result, which is after the proposed rules came out, the use of projections has greatly been curtailed. I think much more effort has gone into dutifully assembling projections, which has brought valuations down, as it probably should have been anyway. But, and I want to be clear with your audience, the overvaluations in the SPAC market are no different than in the venture market, the private equity market, the biotech market, in the public markets, high-tech industry, all going on in 2021 and early 22. So it's erroneous to think that it was just isolated the SPAC market the way certain law professors want to have it believed. Because if you look at the decline in those markets subsequently, they've all gone down in tandem. So, Doug, I don't want to put words in your mouth at all, but I'm wondering, do you see the SEC as being activist in how they behaved? Never in the history of my 30 years as a securities professional have I seen a more activist SEC, which is very discouraging because I operate in front of this agency every day. And I have a lot of respect for a lot of people who I've known for a long time there. But things start from the top and go down. And I cannot say that I feel good about my current relationship with the SEC because I believe they have tilted way too much in favor of 
what they consider to be investor protection, which is another way of saying they don't want to see investors put money into small deals. They only like big deals because big deals are safe, which is ironic because that's not true either. And so they pick on the small end of the public markets in a way that I think is in contravention of their mandates. Okay. Let's shift gears for a second. But let's stay in the public market. Let's talk about pipes. Let's talk about the market itself, but also their relationship with SPACs and where they were before the run-up and then how things evolved through the run-up and where they are now. Well, I love the question because, as you know, we have deep roots that go back 20 years in both the SPAC market and independently in the pipes market. Another program that large law and investment banks wrote off as disreputable financing techniques. And for those who don't know, a pipe is a a private investment in public equities, which is a private placement into a public company, which we don't use as much anymore. For the most part, it is registered direct because the securities are registered and it just makes it easier for the investors to sell later on. And that industry, which started 20 plus years ago, of which we're the market leader in that as well, got just as much heat and stigma from the then SEC, as well as certain other law professors who observed and commented on it. And at that time, there were some actual legitimate criticisms having to do with death spiral pipes and structured pipes. But at the end of the day, it's a financing technique into a public company to get them money. Not every financing can be a public offering or an underwritten secondary offering. And so pipes are commonplace in today's market. Over the last 120 days, we have closed dozens upon dozens of non-SPAC related pipe slash registered directs. And nobody takes issue with them anymore. It is not even a conversation about whether or not they're disreputable, anything of the kind as it relates to an independent financing technique, which is amusing because there'll come another point in time where there'll be another SEC administration who will take that issue on again because it happens episodically. Because if you speak to your same contacts, Bill, who told you that SPACs are bad, they'll say the same thing about pipes. And there are just certain programs that can't lose the stigma. And then there are others like IPOs that can do no wrong and will always be the only way to do things. But pipes and SPACs are very important as they came together because up until 2010, the only way for a SPAC business combination to successfully conclude was if the shares of the SPAC traded above $10 in and around the closing of the transaction, then investor didn't have an incentive to redeem at $10. They'd rather just sell into the public marketplace and get more than $10. And in 2010, all of a sudden, some of the large money management firms, Fidelity, Wellington, and the like, would start to look at simultaneous financings into a SPAC to de-risk the transaction from the target's point of view. So I'm a a private company. I want to go public through a SPAC, but I know that 100% of the capital that's been raised into the SPAC is subject to redemption by investors. So before we announce the deal, we do a wall-crossed marketing campaign to certain high-quality institutional investors who understand the business of the target and say, do you like this deal? Would you be interested in putting money in? And you would get firm commitments from these institutions, privately marketed in an amount of money that would guarantee that the deal would close even if 100% of the public investors chose to redeem. So the pipe starting in 2010 became a very important instrument. And the large money management firms were more than willing to participate because they could get a big chunk of the company. But the sponsors of SPACs ever since 1993 have just become better recognized figures in the capital markets. And even by 2010, you had celebrated personalities who knew the people who ran the money at Fidelity and Wellington. So after 2010, when you have all these celebrated SPAC sponsors that know the money management firm, as I suggested, the committed pipe was the way to guarantee to a target that their SPAC business combination made sense and it was worthwhile for them 
to sell to a SPAC and go that route. Now, that's 2010. And most of those deals that we talked about earlier, Bill, were mature business models than the one that you start to see in 2020 and 21. But the technique is the technique that is utilized in many of the deals in 20 and 21. And if there's an area where I'm sympathetic to the regulators, where I think there was appropriate inquiry into activity, it's in late 20 and 21, where the pipes being marketed confidentially, and somehow the market becomes aware of this, and the stock of certain SPACs starts to appreciate significantly pre-announcement. And that's a classic MNPI, material non-public information, breach, which should result in an investigation. And if what's happening is you are really pre-marketing the pipe into the public market, so retail bids up the stock, so it's easier for you to market the pipe and get the deal done, and then the pipe can sell out a couple months later into the traffic or the enthusiasm created by that activity. Yeah, that's a pump and dump scheme. I have no ambiguity about that. And had there been examples, which I think there were, the SEC should have shut that down. And then I don't think any of the securities law professionals that I'm aware of would have taken any issue with that because that would have been an appropriate area for them to regulate. Okay. And we've seen a growth in terms of the size of the pipes across the run-up. I mean, pipes as large as a billion dollars, though certainly the exception and not the rule, have accompanied deals. And so I know that pipes have given some degree of comfort to investors to be sure in terms of looking at business combinations. Let's talk a little bit about where the market is now, because in 2022, the market slowed and investors became uncomfortable and pulled back a little bit. And as such, deals began to look different. Where are we now in terms of of the market as you guys are handling deals on a, a daily basis? Well, let's let's use the, the real numbers. Coming into the end of last year, there were 600 publicly listed SPACs. And there was a limited number of SPAC IPOs last year. There's like 22 or 23 this year. So we've dropped significantly in terms of activity level on the IPO front. Not that there's lack of investor appetite for SPAC IPOs. It, it's anything but that. It's that the benefit of the bargain for SPAC sponsors has changed. So the mainstream media, not you, wanted everybody to villainize SPAC sponsors because they were putting up, as I said earlier, call it $4 million on a $100 million SPAC IPO and had the opportunity and did in certain cases in 20 and 21, get a multiple, significant multiple of value on that $4 million. What they don't write about at all or talk about or show any sympathy because it's not a retail investor, it's just a lot of rich people, over 250 SPAC sponsors have gotten wiped out of 100% of their SPAC sponsorships. That's billions of dollars, to be clear. Not because they got ripped off in any way. They made a bet, and they didn't get a deal done, and they lost their money. Well, who got that money? Retail investors who redeemed their securities got 100% of their money back. That's an interesting twist that the Wall Street Journal and New York Times don't like to talk about. So that's part of the backdrop of the story. But of the 600 deals that were lined up to come into 2023, 150 liquidated because there was a tax issue that was raised under the Inflation Reduction Act. And so those sponsors either thought they couldn't get a deal done or they didn't want to have exposure to that tax. So coming into this year, you had 450 SPACs that were listed. 150 of those had announced proposed business combinations with letters of intent. And since then, probably half of those got their deals done and the other half probably liquidated because they didn't get their deals done. And so of the remaining 300, another 150 have announced deals. And I think by the end of the year, you'll have fewer than 200 listed SPACs, which is probably a good size for the SPAC industry down from the 600. But the other thing I want to point out is in 2021, 200 private companies went public through SPACs. In 2022, 100 
private companies went public through SPACs. And you'll have a similar number this year. You're now asking about the financing activity associated with those deals. So the simultaneous pipe, which was the mechanism we were talking about earlier, is not as available as it was. So not as much money is being raised, although 120 days ago, the pipe market started to pick up fairly dramatically. We've, As I said earlier, we've closed dozens of deals having nothing to do with SPACs. But that was a leading indicator to me that there would be more money available for the DSPAC transactions that we're working on. And we've closed four in the last month and a half. And there's more money available to many of them than there had been previously. And I think if you look at some of the SPACs and how they're trading this year, both the proposed DSPAC transactions, like the Indian EV company, as well as historic SPACs that DSPAC'd in 20 and 21 that had a downshift have now come back significantly. So I think there's more money that's available for financings. And I hope we get back to the point, which we're not currently, where deals are announced with a simultaneous pipe that secures the minimum cash requirement necessary to guarantee the closing of that deal. But I think we'll get there. Okay. Let's talk about, I think, one of the unique features of SPACs, and that is the deal clock. Used to be that every SPAC had 24 months from the time that it went public from its IPO. That time shifted a little bit as we got further into the run-up, and there, there was an overpopulation of SPACs, I think, and there was exuberance, but also a certain degree of investor discomfort to where SPACs began getting 18 months as a rule, or 15 months for that matter. I've seen the clock down as low as nine months, which is nuts. I honestly don't think that's enough time to do a quality search for a good company. And if I was the SEC, I would be troubled by that idea. But okay. Can I just interrupt for a second? Bill, let's go with that. How come the SEC doesn't propose to the listing authorities where they have imposed upon the listing authorities, you can't go out more than three years? Why don't they come up with a rule that says you can't be less than a year or 18 months? Why not propose legislation that helps the industry as well and makes it more reasonable on that side? Doug, I'm going to need you to take a deep breath. I think we both know that isn't the way a regulator operates. Not that it's not a bad idea, but at any rate, what I've been seeing in the marketplace over the last six months, maybe, has been an increase in the use of extensions by SPACs, where SPACs go to their shareholders and they say, hey, look, we'd like to have a little more time to get a deal done. Sometimes they do this when they have a deal on the table, but they will be unable to close it in time, given their hard stop. And so they'll go and they'll say, hey, we would like a little more time. And in exchange for that, we're willing to add a nickel a share to what you hold. Sometimes it's a matter that they have no located deal yet, but they think they will be able to. Sometimes they're talking to somebody, but isn't public yet. And so they ask for more time. Look at that as being an encouraging sign within the market based on the fact that we have seen a lot of liquidations over the last 18 months. And some of those, as you rightfully pointed out, were attached to the IRA. But I think also sometimes liquidations take place where somebody looks at the market and says, I don't like where we are now. I don't like where the market is now. I don't believe we can get there. And so they decide they want to move on, put the resources somewhere else. What is your take in terms of the number of extensions we've been seeing and how sponsors are looking at the marketplace going forward? I've caught my breath. I've calmed down. So I can answer the question now. The 150 SPACs that chose to dissolve going into the end of last year because of the IRA, many of those SPAC sponsors, I think, also were just so tired of the stigma that had been imposed upon them during the process of putting the SPAC together and trying to find deals. These were well-known private equity and venture firms that just didn't like the negative press that they were getting in the public markets or the concern from their lawyers or their bankers from the SEC 
because they had to live through a couple restatements that the SEC imposed on the industry without any real merit or value to retail investors. And so I think a lot of people just chose to walk away having nothing to do with deal flow. You come into this year, and as I walked you through the numbers earlier, you have fewer and fewer SPACs. What is occurring is there's no shortage of deals for SPACs. The IPO window is just beginning to open. Very few private companies will make it through that window, even though we do a lot of IPOs as well. And we think it's a good place for certain private companies to go public through an IPO or even a direct listing, even though the results are pretty ambiguous there as well. But the SPAC sponsors that have vehicles now have no shortage of deal flow. So what they're saying to themselves, rather than give up, we'd rather extend by lending, by giving money to the public investors and extending their life, which is really just paying for the privilege of being in the game another extra few months and hoping that they can get the deal done and breathe value into their sponsor economics. And so they're saying, we're confident we have the opportunity to get a deal done and we're not giving up. Credit them for their perseverance. And the other thing you're seeing, which is a sub-theme, you have certain serial SPAC sponsors who have created a great pipeline of finding deals that are stepping into the shoes of former SPAC sponsors and using those vehicles that they did not create themselves and acquiring companies with those SPACs that would also many times have been on extension. The timeline I think we'll agree on was it was supposed to be at the end of March of this year that 75% of all SPACs were supposed to hit the wall and liquidate. And thus the need for the extensions for all those 75% that are in the marketplace today. All right. Let's shift gears. You and your firm have been in this back market for a long time. You've seen the elephant. During the exuberance of 2020 and even as far as 2022, as you've noted, there were a lot of SPACs in the marketplace, far more than ever before. You guys got your share of the business and it makes sense given your experience. But there were a number of large law firms who had avoided the SPAC market in part because they felt there was reputational risk who literally in the very best tradition of Wall Street looked at the table and said, boy, is there a lot of money over there? wonder if we could get our hands on some of that. And so thus we saw a rush of white shoe firms into the SPAC marketplace. I don't know that those firms always brought about good results. I'm wondering as somebody who has seen the market in all shapes and forms, what your impression was of the rush into the market to try to slice the pie up. So this will amuse you. You and I, you know, I haven't actually talked about it, but there's a term that we use in the SPAC business or that we created, truthfully, generation one, two, and three SPACs. And we did it specifically because we wanted the marketplace to be able to make an intellectual distinction, even though I don't think it was reality, that somehow generation three SPACs, which really started in 2010, 11, 12, were somehow divorced from the history, the ugly history of SPACs from generation one and two. And so when you get to 2020 and 21, I had fellow professionals saying to me, well, you know, we can get involved now because of their generation three SPACs, as if somehow they had gone through some baptism and now they were purified and everything was great. And so the human mind is interesting if they can rationalize why they can get involved they will get involved. But as you point out, it was really purely commercial. Their clients were calling them and it was big business. Do I think it was mistaken for many of those firms that didn't have the internal expertise to handle that work? Yes. I think they have been subject to malpractice claims. I think they've gotten caught in Delaware courts. I think they've done a disservice in part to their clients who gave them unnecessary exposure because they didn't have the sensitivities to certain issues along the way that maybe we had. Not that we don't make mistakes. Of course we do. But I'd like to think that experience matters. And it was amusing to me. I'd be bidding for a piece of work and some client who wanted to work with another law firm who had no SPAC history, they chose to go with. And the whole point of working with a law firm 
is because they are supposed to have experience and expertise. But somehow, as this game became more interesting, you had a lot of firms that had very little experience. And I was getting phone calls from partners in panics on certain issues. And I felt badly for them. I would always try and help them out. But yes, I think there were law firms, accounting firms, banks, who probably would have served their own interests better if they had just stayed on the sideline. All right. Doug, last question. You've been very generous with your time. I want to give you a chance to talk about anything that you think maybe we should have covered, something you see in the market now that's interesting to you that we didn't have a chance to talk about, and swing away, if you will. SPACs exist because they solve a problem, Bill. They help private companies go public that no longer can go public through a traditional IPO. That hasn't changed just because of the euphoric period of time that we've come through. In fact, I think it's evident from the numbers I shared with you earlier that the SPAC market is going to continue. It's just going to be a more mature, more moderated marketplace. And I think that it's not unlike the pipes market that for 20 years, it's been around and now we don't talk about it in some way that gets headline risk in any of the business publications. So as I started, and I shared this with you privately at the SPAC annual conference this year, thank God for the crypto market. The SPAC market is no longer interesting to enforcement at the SEC the way it was. And all of the headline risk is being borne by that industry, who I actually believe deserves it, even though I'm all for alternative finance techniques. I think they flouted the SEC rules and they're getting the backhand. But it makes for great, great sports page reading. But I'm glad we no longer are in the crossfire ourselves. Fair enough. Doug, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. I found it was very informative. And as always, it's a lot of fun to talk. Well, Bill, thank you. And thank you for your continued participation and involvement and coverage of the industry. Because without you and people who are balanced and don't have an axe to grind, there's very few outlets that we can trust. So thank you to you and the deal and everybody involved. Appreciate it. You're too kind, sir. For Drinks with the Deal, this is Bill Maher. Until next time. 